So, uh, Carr didn't win the Arena Super Cup Invitational, did you? No, no, I did not. Who's your replacement? Who ended up most money that week at the Arena Super Cup? Um, Whoever that is gets to be a podcast. Oh, well, thank God. Thank God that we got to keep it at a table for two then. Because it was you. It was me? Oh, wow, yeah. Because I... I won $600 at the Arena Super Cup Open <laughs> when I showed up. To, I was there to cheer you on, buddy. I was like, I guess I'll play this other thing. And then it worked out. Now we're enjoying some delicious Chinese food, Mapo tofu, cumin lamb, and Szechuan style fish. I missed my call chat, but uh, I think I played one of the best sets in the format. <clears throat> Over underestimating how many people would have played Kethis in that format, it ended up being the most popular deck in the Invitational. Yeah, um, that's why I ended up playing in the in, in the Open, and it was it was great. It's a very powerful deck that is no longer standard legal. We've rotated past then. <laughs> we have Throne of Eldraine has has hit, which is a pretty sweet set, especially for limited. I hear, <laughs> especially for limited. Um, I mean, we just recently had a Magic Fest. Yeah, or Grand Prix, as the, the tournament's called. Right. And I decided to show up, you know, make my, my presence known. And uh, I ended up winning it, actually. It was my, my fifth GP win, so kind of nice. Since my career really started with GP Montreal 2011, when I lost the finals to Rich Owen. And it's kind of, you know, that was my first GP top eight, and now it's my most recent one is I finally won the finals in Montreal. I'd won it... I'd, I'd won a GP in Calgary, I've won one in Vancouver, but I had not won a GP in Montreal before. So, and hometown hero. We'll get to more of the finals where like, I did feel potentially deja vu at one point when it, it started to look a bit murky for you. Um, you know, you're someone that has told me privately how you get, well, I think it's, it's a little known secret that you get bored very easily. So I think it was on brand to see you on Friday instead of preparing for the tournament or, or playing Magic <laughs> to play Star Realms and, and uh, getting other people like Sergio Ferry, David Rude in, into Star Realms. That, that was uh, yeah, well, so was, on brand. I mean, basically a bunch of people were playing. I went to go and play in, uh, in, in maybe some events, you know. I had some people staying with me and uh, we went to the site on Friday. They were playing the PTQs, which I obviously couldn't play. And none of the events looked that exciting for me to play. Uh, I wanted to see what the goal was going on in standard because standard's kind of important, but mainly I was just there and uh, Toby Schneer uh, came by, he's like, oh, I have this game, you want to play? Star Realms, I never played before. And so taught me the rules and immediately was hooked, so I was just playing it all day. Because to, instead of being bored, people would come around and play with different people and chat and stuff. My favorite part about GPs or Magic Fest now, but getting to hang out with a whole bunch of cool people, especially like this one, the local ones and just see all these old people from like you know days of magic's past come come out of the woodwork talked about you know as, as old school legends of the game louis boileau who we hadn't, we hadn't mentioned he, i remember he was you know old school he ended up putting ninth in the gp uh meg McNair, eric Gauthier. i think this is his third gp montreal top eight i think he, he's, he's a boss yeah i think all of them like limited so um, a quick tidbit before on Star Realm, I felt like I think you, you and I have played the old games before. I got hooked on on Star Realms. I wonder if it's the same thing for you because at a certain point, because it was similar to like Dominion, Ascension, and all that, but it also had a mechanic where you're sort of dealing damage. So that's where I yeah, felt yeah. it was different. Yeah, it's it's very similar to Ascension. If you played that. I had played that before, so I had a little bit of that, man. 
I like that you're dealing down with the opponent rather than to like the board because in Ascension it felt that the board would often get clogged up with either things you could buy or things you could fight. And here is like, well, if you have a bunch of fight, you don't have to have exactly the right number kind of, except for sometimes when to kill opposing like permanents. But it felt way more interactive. Basically, it felt much more that we were playing against each other, whereas sometimes the other game feel a little bit more like solitaire. So it's a good game. I liked it, and apparently it's only twenty dollars at Face to Face Games. Dark. What? We we don't need face sponsorship on this. Oh, no, no, we, we we remain sponsorless. List. I just all your other podcasts are are sponsored by them, so I wanted to make fun of you. We just we just need uh, people like uh, I don't know Sergio Ferry to to chip in a copy here and there, or uh, an awesome ice cream that he uh, kindly bought for for all of us yeah, after the event. We're standing right now. We're right across from an ice cream place, and after how good that ice cream was, post post GP victory ice cream, I'm tempted to to, to go and, and have uh, have our faithful listeners at table for two cover cover a little little sweet treat. You know, um, I mean, we, we just had some some mapo tofu at a new place, um, and uh, pretty good, pretty good. Yeah. Not not the best. Is it like the... third best, probably we've had. I think. What was second though? Uh, Shake Chili with you, number one. Oh, Shake Chili with Bosu. <laughs> we need to do a blind test next time with you. With yeah, me I, and him. Yeah, and I, you, you, like, basically, I'm blindfolded. I don't know which of you I'm going to the restaurant with. Yeah. And then, <laughs> do you think I can't tell the difference when one of you speaks Mandarin and one speaks Cantonese? Because I certainly can't. I'm, 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 I'm very ignorant. <laughs> we have to, I don't know, I don't know what we have to do, but I think, like, another just, just quick thing about, like, all the... I guess legends or, or known players of our generation, and how um, I made a comment on what was it on a show? Oh yeah, on the radio show <laughs> with Vincent Tebow about uh, the up and comers and, and my opinion on on whether we have that has always been like you know it's weird we just haven't seen um, that many of them and this top eight almost reinforces my point with you. Rob Anderson, Meg, you know, all these old school guys doing yeah, Louis well. Louis Ball almost makes yeah. it, right? It's like, Eduardo came 10th, right? Eduardo Sadler. So it's like all these people you already know yeah. are doing well. You know, so it's it's tough. I think Magic's a hard game to just start off and be great at because a lot of the great players have built up years and years of experience and learning heuristics and recognizing patterns. And, the, you know, the basically all the people started when the game started are just still kind of active players no the other games like chess that's not the case and they have the internet has already and computers have affected chess a lot and we're kind of seeing that with magic more and more like formats constructed formats seem to be solved faster and faster it's harder you know is it because play design is doing a horrible job i don't know you know hogak i think was was a pretty big miss there but I can understand other things being hard to balance, you know. Yeah, that's a good point. With the internet, you would feel... Because one of the arguments I made for the reason things are the way they are was that if you're a local kid at a shop, a lot of... It's just the truth. A lot of established players looking to improve are not going to want to spend their time uh, playing against you. Yeah, you end up playing against kind of the people that they played against though back in the day. Some of those people are still sharking the you know, they say big fish, small pond. And there's a lot of people who are happy to be their F and M hero, right? Shout out to Jonathan Medina. And like there's 
you know, you're there. You're you're the you're the king of your home turf. You go three one or four zero every week. You get a promo and a couple packs, and that's enough for you. And that's a perfectly fine way to to play the game. I mean, some of these people have also experienced playing at a higher level, and they didn't necessarily have that much success, and maybe they didn't like it for that reason, or you know, they prefer playing their casual decks or whatever. You know, but it's it's a very tough trickle upstream to get to to become a top level pro from starting like just going to your local shop but you're making me think that sort of can be negated by the fact that arena is a lot more accessible so it's like if i'm a kid in a going to an lgs where there's no no good players or, or good players don't want to play with me i now have this other path that, that i didn't normally have before but uh, anyways, like what I've been seeing, at least in the local scene, my view, same player is doing well, and it's been reinforced by this weekend, and there, there hasn't been anything changed. Only recent stars that I know of are like Sean Dollywall, you know, Ed- Edgar, yeah. who had a rise, but we're not seeing that, that many names pop up that I've yeah, seen well, before. Also in Canada, it seems like different scenes have their own like golden age. For you and me, Montreal was kind of when we were starting to get good at Magic. We were like golden age here in Montreal. There were a lot of up and coming players, and a lot of you know people kind of having the success internationally were from let's say other places in Canada. We were kind of all working to push ourselves up. I think Toronto kind of had that period more recently where they have, good point. They kind of haven't had someone on the like top level player. You know, there were all the kind of pros were from other places in Canada, and so they've kind of all pushed themselves up. Now they're where like the the golden age of Magic seems to be in Toronto, where there's a lot of great talent. That, you know, that now seems to be harvesting the SEG circuit. Good point. We're talking about people like yeah, uh, Edgar, uh, yeah. Matthew, Matthew Dilts, Daryl Ayers, or um, Dom Harvey. Like all these people seem to be working together, like you said, rising each other up. And uh, yeah, you're right. You're definitely right. In those situations, we're going to see that rise. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's what it's about. Like, because, you know, the, there's always the classic advice if you go to someone better than you at Magic to get better, right? And you learn from them. But the thing is, that doesn't work because they're also trying to find someone better than them to learn from. The trick is to find someone around your level who alternates between being a little bit better than you and a little bit worse and learn from them because you have kind of overlapping knowledge, certainly, you know, but there's the Venn diagram of the knowledge that you each each have compared to the total amount of magic knowledge is small, and there's definitely always things you can teach each other. So that was kind of how it felt like for me in the Montreal community when I was starting to get good at magic that, you know, someone like Rob Anderson, I think when we started playing, he was better than me. I learned from him, and then I taught him stuff and raised his level. You know, he was someone who was dominant in the local scene, but with a bit of a push, he became someone who would qualify every year or so, at least for the pro tour. Good point. I think it, it, so some of it is due to luck, to be lucky that you're playing in, in a time where other people are interested. Like, I was lucky that during the check swing time in my CGIP years that I was going to a store where things people wanted to be competitive. Exactly, it was yeah. vibrant. I was, I was in the right place in the, at the right time, and of course I started Mad at the Prime at the right time. As well. Yeah, I mean, the right place, right time is important, but like you, you could look, that's why often some of these smaller countries often have extremely strong magic playing players, like the Czech Republic being the prime example. And a lot of it is because a lot of the players are geographically close and kind of so the golden age is only ever going to happen in Prague, basically, right? Let's say there's no, it's not spread out the way it is, let's say, in Canada. 
So all the players can keep rising each other up over and over again. So the newcomers just get thrust back into the thing. Um, it's interesting. I mean, I I definitely think there are there is potential for new talent to rise up. Like, you know, for instance, my first, first top eight back 2011 GP Montreal. Rich Hohen, he was he was the end boss. He was the most accomplished Canadian Magic player. He was like the old guard, right? And I was an up and comer. I was I had I had no results. I wasn't really known. If you actually read the coverage from that, it's embarrassingly like obvious how the coverage reporter just gave me no credit at all. Especially when I read it, I remember that it's just so many things are blatant lies. Like, oh, he top decked. He wasn't here for nothing. He top decked. He ju jumped out of his seat. An overrun or whatever. When really, you know, I had over in my hand the whole game and just missing a third green source. And I drew forest finally. You know, turn twenty. Anyways, uh, or just like, oh, he's visibly started playing faster or whatever. You know, the, the coverage reporters never wrote anything about that for for more established <laughs> names. But you know, hey, maybe I was super jittery, but I don't think I was behaving like that. And you know, now I'm the established person, and I'm the person to beat like Rich Owen was back then, taking them GP. And it's kind of interesting to think about, you know, because for people listening, it's like. You, you kind of didn't know me for the most part when I was like just starting out player. I, I, I've become known to most of you when I was a pro and when I've been already successful, already kind of you know at the top level of the game. But about almost half of my Magic playing experience, I guess at this point it's less than half, but like I'm about six years of non-pro and eight years of, of pro. And... I was, but I for a long time I was an up and coming player trying to break through, trying to looking up to you know the pros. Like I remember being too nervous to go to get some card signed by LSV, and now you know I'll gladly troll him whenever I get the chance. <laughs> so yeah, it, yeah, it is possible uh, I, that there somewhere out there at, at right now there's some booming LGS with uh, the next Alexander Hain somewhere. Yeah. Maybe, or, or maybe I'm just the best there ever was and ever will be. You know, the, it, it's it, nobody knows. We're, we're not, we don't know the future here. If you if you do know the future, you're probably going to be a lot better at magic than me because knowing the future is a very valuable skill. <laughs> I just think, but you're right. It has to come in waves. You're right. That that's the thing that I didn't I didn't recognize when we first talked about it because even in Alberta people ate with us. Bosu, Brett Steele. It's just, it's like Brett Steele. Brett yeah. Steele. It's it's like the same people that were part of basically our our generation. Let's say exactly. Or yeah. 2011. Whatever. Well, and that's those are the people you hang out with because they're the people you came up with. You formed these bonds, these friendships that you know are often lifetime friendships because of this and that's the real gift that magic gives right is meeting these people who are like at the same level as you and you work up because you're equals it's, it's hard to have that type of relationship with someone who's completely different from 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 like looking for the same things that you are and you know we're hanging with those who kind of is part of our generation and so all, all those guys in the next generation you know what I, I, there was a long time I was worried because I think like things like the JSS and the Magic Scholarship Series were good ways I think to get the younger generation in. And now with computers and computer games and with Magic being so exorbitantly expensive, I was worried that kids just wouldn't be getting into it. And there's just not no next generation that Magic is way more focused on trying to acquire people who quit before to get back in the game. But I think Arena 
changes that. I think Arena is accessible, and I think Arena is somewhere where, kind of like Magic Online, you can become a good player through Arena. But I don't think you can be great through either. I think to be a great player, you need a community around you. You can't really do it alone. And you know, just like they say, it takes a village to raise a child. I think it's, I think it's kind of like that for you know to make a Magic pro. Good, good point. I mean, it's like uh, the other. So whereas, like, I was saying, hey, maybe it's more accessible now. There is that con of, of community where, you know, there's no, there's no f- people complain all the time that Arena doesn't have a friend friends option or any community uh, tools within the software. Right. Whereas I had I had to physically go to Checkswing and, and play with these people every yeah. every Friday. That's what I did. Well, I mean, you think of original Team Channel Fireball, right? A huge number of those guys just all went to the store that became Channel Fireball, which was Superstars, I think, yeah, in, yeah. in California. Like, Shahar Shanhar, Joshua Layton, Luis, like, uh, David Ochoa, like, all those guys would just go there, and they would just battle. They would just be there battling, you know, and they, obviously, playing each other, there's a lot of magic talent there, but they kind of all made each other better. There's a reason they end up getting to this top level. There's a reason that people form these super teams, and it's because that's the real way to get better at magic. All right, I think we're going to talk a bit more, and then, and then I got, you want to get an ice cream after? Okay. Um, but before that, I'm going to trick you for a, a bit, a taste of some high-level strategy that you use to to win the GP. I think we have more than a few listeners tell us how they've listened to our pod and that they help rethink the way that they cyborg. Or even David Rude, I don't know if he mentioned you, but he mentioned me, where uh, he saw that you used a card in a different way, that you did something, you, you, yeah, did yeah. to you? Okay, yeah, yeah. please. Yeah, well, he, he tweeted about it. So basically, the board state was my opponent, I have a, a random 2-2 two, two, and like a 3-3. A three, three. My opponent has a 2-3. And I have Tenrith Transformation, which is a colorless and a green enchantment. Enchanted creature becomes a 3-3 three, three elk, loses all abilities, and you draw a card. And so... The reason I put that in my deck is to be able to answer opponent's bombs, right? They play a big flyer or whatever. Suddenly it's just a 3-3 three, three and I draw a card. Um, and that's... David Rude was saying how when he plays sealed and or builds sealed deck, he kind of tunnel visions a little bit. And that card gets assigned in his mind to be a removal spell. But what I did is I played I played it on my 2-2 two, two creature, making it into a 3-3. Three, three. I drew a card. And then I could attack with both my 3-3s three, into my opponent's 2-3. Thereby, you know, getting a big tempo advantage and getting to attack. And, you know, it's, it's a play that's it's not a... It, it's sort of obvious when you think about it in some ways, but you have to be open to be able to think about plays like that. You have to consider the play. Once you consider it, you see that it's good. But if you're if you're kind of tunnel-visioned into thinking, this card is a removal spell, I, this is, I save it for using it on my opponent's creatures, then you're going to miss out on those opportunities. And I think... That's a lot of what magic is about. The really cool stuff, I think, is when you get to do something in a way that you've never thought of before until that moment. To use a card, for example, I was just playing on stream today, and I have these fairy guide mothers, right? That are the 1-1 flyers, or you can adventure to give a creature plus 2, plus 1 in flying. And I was always like, oh, I'm just going to give my creature flying and get in there and then play it. But against my opponent, I would sideboarded in a plummet equivalent, you know, uh, fell the pheasant which, you know, kills a flying creature, well, does five damage and you get a food. Well, with the Fairy Guide Mother, you can give your opponent's creature flying. Let's say they have a big 6-6 six, six creature on the ground or something. 
well, probably not 6-6 six, six, since it does damage, but the point being you can give one of their creatures flying and then kill it with your plummet, which is, you know, an interaction that you might not think of immediately because especially sometimes these cards are like creature you control gets plus two, plus one or something. And there are times where that play is going to win you the game. You know, Maniacal Rage is a classic example. You know, you normally want to play a two drop and play Maniacal Rage on it gets plus two, plus two and can't block and you attack it, right? But sometimes you just your opponent has one big blocker and you just put that on their, their creature. Sure, it's even bigger, but it can't block anymore. You can attack with all your creatures and you get more damage in that way. So being able to think outside the box, being able to not tunnel vision, not not only use like autopilot and your shortcuts, being able to see the whole picture and look at every piece as what it could be, not just what you think it is, is important. So, so I I'm having deja vu because I'm I feel like I've had many games where you've looked over my shoulder like many many years ago, and it was a line that I never considered because that's not how the card was traditionally used. Like 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 all these examples you mentioned, um, you know whether it be like a card that burns or or drains life, I I never think of doing it. Let's say on myself or my own creature where. Maybe there's a situation that might be possible that it's good. And I wonder, this is my curious question then. So would people do better? Do they have to think about the card before the game uh, happens? Like look at a spoiler, know that, sort of visualize the different options a card has? Or are you doing, are you just stopping yourself in the game and you're feeling like you can ex assess instead of like just shortcutting, okay, this card can only do A and B and discarding I guess variations like a chess engine, like completely disregarding using it uh, like the opposite way. Like, what do you think is the best way to do it? Like, how do you do it? Do you just like. Well, I think it's it really or? hard to just look at all the cards ahead of time and evaluate them all. That's kind of the exact opposite of, of my approach if you've been following the podcast. Like, <laughs> no study. Yeah, stu studying and like, you know, repetition and, and like just building up patterns in your head that's not how I approach things I try and approach things more I guess holistically kind of just so you're in the scenario and I have I have a method basically I have a process for how I think through things and that involves like making sure one, one step is making sure that I'm not missing something there's not something weird for example you know the, the line by Alaska this is when you see a good move look for a that's better one, one. Of your quotes. I, lo I, I love that one because it just applies so much. And I think that's a much better way to do it because especially even when you're looking at these cards, you have to not only, often these situations aren't about the individual cards themselves, but a lot more about how they interact with other cards. It's very hard to look at every card and look at every other card and see how they interact. That's an absurd amount of, of things to go. And that's one of the things that like, I find playing cube really helped me a lot because cube, you get to see cards interact in ways that are, are not normal. You don't, you don't normally see like a good four mana creature from back in the day interact with a good four mana creature from today because the format you'd play that in is like, let's say, Legacy and nobody plays four mana creatures. You can't play anything that costs more than three, really, in Legacy. So, getting, getting to see those interactions that allows you kind of to broaden what you view as possible and I think that's... Uh, that's a good way to kind of train these those muscles in some ways, but it's all about having a thought process that works. I'm thinking about what you said, like another thing that you mentioned that I can really relate to, which I thought like sounds really counterintuitive at first, which is like 
play testing too much uh, in a way where if you're always using this card as a removal spell, you're constantly, every single time, your mind is just going to shortcut that to a removal spell. Right. Every time you see it, you draw it, you're like, which bomb do I save it for? That's like the, the checklist in your brain that keeps going. You never think about using it on your own stuff. So, I mean, wow, that's, that's I don't know. Like, I would have to really actively know that I am sort of screwing myself over by like thinking of a card so one-dimensionally, right? Yeah. Yeah, basically, most cards are you know, three-dimensional cards. Even something like a shock that looks so obvious, so you kill your opponent's creatures, you kill them. Well, you know, if they play an Oath of Kaya and target your tutu, you should be shocking your tutu. If the other option was to shock their face, because you get an extra damage. And you know, similarly, there's spots like where, like in Legacy, I'd have a Dismember, and you know, my opponent attacks with a Grizzlebrand, and I block with my Delver and dismember my own Delver so that they don't get to gain any life. You know, th those are like the scenarios where you normally steal your own creature, but kill your own creature. But there's others where, like, you could kill it because they're trying to steal it or something. Or, you know, I, I'm, I'm also the, I'm thinking back. Even though this example is super silly, where uh, Rich, Rich beat Andy in the top four of the Friday PTQ. Uh, he was playing Mono Red Burn, and he had two Leyline of Sanctities and. And his win was, I mean, I can imagine some beginner players not seeing it. And maybe even me, I wouldn't be able to say it. But the strategy was to, to burn yourself with yeah, prowess so you get, so you get prowess, yeah. I, yeah, I, was, I was actually saw someone do that this, this past weekend. I was watching the Leyline in play, and it's just like, attack you, lightning helix me, lightning bolt me. You take three from my monastery Swiss spear. It's like, well, you know, it's not what you si really signed up your, your, your cards to do, but... That's if your life total doesn't really matter, their life total does. That's the best use of the spells you're going to get. Right. Do it. So you kill them that way. Do it. And I could, I could feel a younger version of myself uh, not doing it, and some guy like you know, you could just burn yourself, dude, and I'd be like, wow, yeah, <laughs> or something. I don't know. Well, I mean, for example, like you know, there's sometimes like there's the Brineborn Cutthroat, right? The two-one flash that when you cast a spell on your opponent's turn, you have a couple someone else encounter. And there's a spot where you have, like, you know, a, uh, a like, lightning strike type card, but the one with the Scorching Dragon Fire. And your, your thing has three toughness, and on their end step, if no, they're not a creature deck, you can target it, and it'll get up to four toughness, survive the burn spell, and then attacks from one more on the later turn. And, you know, possibly that shortens your clock by a turn. Who knows? So a lot of, a lot of things that... Always you know, gotta snap, snap yourself out of autopilot somehow. Yeah, I mean, for example, there's like the mono black deck in standard where, you know, I had there's drill bit in the deck and there's there, my opponent is hellbent, but I cast the drill bit anyways because I have the black castle that you can activate to draw a card and you lose a life for each card in your hand. So I'm actually just trying to get cards out of my hand. <laughs> it's, you know, it's weird, but it's you have, you have to think that that's one way. Sometimes, you know, Making yourself discard is even more effective. If you have two drill bits, just target yourself, right? Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna go pay and then. Uh, we'll oh yeah, you are. You better pay. <laughs> so actually, talking of up and coming players, we've by the way now gone and just had a bunch of ice cream and chocolate and stuff, and we're exceedingly full. Is uh, Maxi Moget? Is he is he pretty good? I, is he up and coming? I, I actually don't know. Well, he's the Arena Super Cup champion this time around. He took your throne, man. He took your title. He did. He actually also beat me at, in the finals of a PPTQ 
in a, um, I believe it was the blue right copter mirror where I misevaluate. I was clearly winning and misevaluated the board, the position, thought I needed to loot mana to play my Jace, which was irrelevant. And instead of just putting pedal to the metal, like uh, I, I gave him a, an opening to beat me. Yeah, because he's someone I see doing pretty well fairly often, and uh, he's not part of the old crowd, right? He's still part of our generation. He's kind of the next generation of Magic players, regardless of how old he is. It's more when he, he started becoming a competitive player. So, And, of course, the Arena Super Cup Open champion, Matthew Stein, <laughs> who's we, people have been calling the, the next generation Magic player for like eight years now. I think... Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see OJ uh, do really well across different uh, tournaments. I think he's probably done... I've seen his face a lot and name a lot. Like He's probably done well yeah. during our Open Series. I think he's got a local GP Top 8 probably. Um, and uh, here wins a few tournaments here and there. Um, so so we had talked about... Uh, like, yeah, okay. The, the big high-level concept before was autopiloting. And once again, um, went into more detail with more examples than ever before. And there's a question that, that was asked that's relevant to the GP also, but that's been asked by some of our listeners. Uh, so I w- I'll just take this episode to, to take care of this one, which is people asking you how you keep your focus throughout an entire long tournament. And uh, before I give it back to you, just want to mention like I was watching you get land flooded and I, I was watching you. Not only that were you chewing gum, but I noticed that you <laughs> kept your compo- composure throughout, even though, like, it was, it's one of those spots where not only were you land-flooded, but the position was fairly balanced that any card, any reasonable form of gas was going to potentially swing things significantly one way. So it was always depressing where you, it's like another land, but thankfully they drew something that was just, it was a real card, but it didn't tip the tip the balance too far but then you just kept your stone cold stare even though at some point uh like we discussed after that it was kind of obvious that you were just holding lands yeah i mean if you watch me play i'm just like super focused i kind of look angry when i'm playing if you look if you see pictures i'm just hyper focused but normally i'm just like you know goofing off the rest of the time and that's like part of it i'm always just thinking about things and kind of holding together you get some practice at, at making a poker face I don't think I'm particularly good at it but I'm not particularly bad at it either uh, for me well I guess we'll for me I, I will we'll start with by saying that like I try and feel the same about any match I just I'm gonna if I'm gonna play a match of magic I'm gonna try and win it and that's one of the reasons why I have difficulty trying to play casual formats with my friends like commander or something but it's also why I can treat round four of a GP and round 15 of a GP the same. The same thing what often I do really well on day twos of tournaments, even when I don't do that well on day one, because I just keep it together and kind of focus on just what's ahead of me, it's kind of staying present in the moment, you know, like the Zen masters talk about. But also for this particular tournament, as you, you remarked, you, you saw me chewing gum. It's not something I normally do. And I'd read up, basically I'd read recently, I think we talked about it, this article on Magnus Carlsen and his preparation, kind of the Grandmaster Diet, as they called it. And one of the things that stood out to me was that he had started chewing gum because it increases blood flow to the head and keeps you kind of from stagnating and getting kind of 
droopy and sleepy. So I was chewing gum basically the whole tournament, and you know who knows how much it benefited me or not. But I I did it and I won the tournament. So anecdotal evidence, there you go. Correlation, causation, all those things. But uh, and also like you know, not general. I don't eat during tournaments because. And that also is like supposed to, you know, less blood go in your stomach means more blood for your brain. Uh, then you don't have to go to the bathroom or feel ill and stuff. Uh, and it helps because again, like from that arc, when you're in somewhat high stress scenarios, where you know there's a lot on the line, your brain's going into overdrive. You have a lot of adrenaline kind of pumping you through. You're not actually that hungry, but it's important I think to stay hydrated. So. Do you do you find yourself get tired throughout throughout the tournament though? Yeah, I mean by the end of this tournament particularly, is it, I was I was pretty exhausted, and when I play a tournament like this, like and I go deep in a tournament like a GP or a PT, I'm basically like dead for a day or two afterwards. Like, for instance, the team GP in Japan, where it's like, oh yeah, we're gonna, I'm gonna go do some sightseeing and stuff. Like the day after, nothing. You know, I just couldn't do anything. Same in like Prague. Like, part of that is that you know we go out celebrating and I go drinking or something, but even without that like I'm just so tired like from Avacyn Restored I remember even like a week later I was still having some effects that like there's some other tournament like you know four days later and I just I couldn't do it I just slept in and it was glorious I felt so good after getting more sleep and th this tournament in particular was like Eldrin is a slow grindy tough format where there's a lot of decisions a lot of going on and my deck in particular was a huge grind, so I really had to push myself. And at the end, kind of the tournament, I had a headache and I was fatigued. There's one point where, like, I went to play an extra land and it's just like, just completely exhausted out of it. Because normally I'm like on the ball about that stuff. So for and, people listening, it's not like yeah. you should expect to be like. No, no. Like often, on it's really a, a marathon at the end there. Like. You know, you, when you watch coverage and you see people playing in the top eight and they make some mis mistakes, often you know you have to you have to be aware that this is after like grueling days of competition, and that it's tough. Like I think that's part of the edge though that I have in some ways. Why I win a lot in top eights is that I think I am good at the endurance battles of these things. I can kind of push myself extra. It's like it's like that scene in Gattaca where I don't know if you've seen that movie where. Him and his brother, they're swimming, and his brother's supposed to be so much genetically superior, but he managed to, to, to swim out further into the ocean. The brother's like, gives up, and is like, How did you do it? How could you swim f further than me? It's like, I never laid, gave any, left anything for the way back. <laughs> never left any, and that's kind of how I do it. I just like, the next few days, I'm just dead, but during the tournament, everything's firing at 100 as much as I can, and you know. Meanwhile, I get to see other people fatigued. Like my Rob, my opponent in the top eight, he was he he definitely made some errors due to due to fatigue, and you know just one tiny error at that point is like I'm not going to let someone get away with that. I can capitalize on any mistake someone makes and figure out where that leaves me strong and where that leaves them weak. You know, if it's one point of damage that allows you to swing a race, a point where you know a bad attack was made or a bad block, and it can kind of enable that to happen to prolong the game then you know take advantage of it um, I guess one interesting thing I did in the top 8 was again against Rob as well where 
we played two, the first two games were really long to the point that my finals opponent was already done, ready in the finals, but by the time we were finished the second game, and uh, going into game three, I realized Rob's deck had like a better late game than mine, and you know, it's going to be very hard to play the long grindy game that my deck was meant to do because he had the tools to beat all my trumps. So I just boarded in a white splash. Like I've, I boarded three planes and three white flyers basically because his deck was low on flyers and he kind of needed his removal spells to gil- kill my big creatures. So I boarded that in and then I had a pretty fa- fast draw with you know some of the, the flyers and just beat him down with them quickly and the, and the game was over. And then in the finals, I also actually just boarded out all my black entirely for white because I thought I needed to be a bit more aggressive and I had uh, a True Love's Kiss, which was really good against Ginger Brute and um, Falls of Beans, Beanstalk. Uh, in the top four, though, I think I, didn't, I made very few changes. I just added another uh, Fell the Pheasant because against my blue-red opponent, my deck was pretty well set up, I think, for fighting that type of matchup where there are... They're attrition-y, but not as attrition-y as me. Whereas against Rob, he was even more attrition-y. And then in the finals, they're too aggressive so that my like card draw spells wouldn't have time to be effective. And I got pretty lucky. I had turn one Golden Goose all three games in the finals, which you know I think coverage mentioned. And a lot of people mentioned too. But you know it was a bad match for me. I think because my deck was low on ways to interact with things, and you know my opponent was kind of playing a boggle strategy where they want to suit up a Ginger Brute and attack. So, you know, it's, their strategy is very bad if someone has a bunch of removal spells because they can just get blown out two for one. All their pump spells strategy is not that good, but against me is very effective. So luckily for me, though, I had the goose, and that gave me so much life over the course of the match that I could manage to race those ginger brutes. Um, I guess a lot of a lot of. Uh, things going on, but one of the big things I guess in the finals also was look, I, looking at my opponent's deck list, because in the top eight you have open deck list, I saw that he was only playing one swamp and as in the, the golden egg so when I played a, a, um, a the effectively Thoughtseize card from my main deck, Memory something uh, I, I saw he had Garrick in his hand, but I took Tall as a Beanstalk because that was a card that would immediately beat me when he suited up and it would be hard to race Whereas Garrick, he didn't have any black mana, and I knew he only had two black sources, so it's unlikely that he was going to draw it in the next few turns, and the game wasn't going to go that long. And that's how it ended up happening. He didn't draw his black source, and I managed to win. And then, in fact, late in the third game, he had his golden egg in play, but he had, and he had the choice of making an attack with his creatures, which would require him to sack golden egg to gain life to survive my crackback, but that would allow him to top deck a pump spell to kill me or to hold back his creature and just hope to draw into Garrick and have a black source for it. So now I think the equation changes if he already has a swamp in play so that then maybe he can attack and sack the egg because the value of the egg is in his eye. It's not necessary to turn on Garrick. And then he actually did top deck the pump spell and he would have killed me if he'd taken the other line. But instead instead, uh, didn't. So I think like it's a lesson for like you know his monocolor decks that if you're playing a splash you can afford a bunch of sources usually you know there there is downside after a while but having a few sources is important to cast your card um, and I just also identified that that was a flaw with his deck list and kind of got to make plays figuring out you know 
with that flaw in mind. You're saying he underestimated how many sources he would he needed? Well, normally two sources for one card is kind of the standard, but that's the minimum, right? And when you have a monocolor deck, you don't you can afford to do more than the minimum. Right. You're le- you're losing less from from playing all those. Right. Uh, like yeah. certainly, you know, if you have one swamp, you're never gonna you're always gonna have adamant for your turn four uh, um, out muscle, right? If you if you have two swamps, you might not have it, right? You could have two swamps, two forests. But the, what are the percentages of that versus the percentage of drawing your Garrick without a source, or one to use your golden egg for something else? And you have to kind of weigh those those things. And my opponent did. I mean, there you know he had gingerbread houses. It's another incentive to have a more, bunch of forests, which is why I'm not suggesting to play like twelve forests and five swamps, but I think three swamps instead of one, maybe even you know even two, relatively low cost. But increases your consistency of casting your card by a lot. So, so recap: he had one plus egg. Yeah. So okay. two total sources, egg of which was a kind of a temporary one in some ways, and because he needed to keep the egg around to be able to have Garrick as a card to draw, he couldn't successfully play to his other out. So it was a interesting spot where kind of a little a small mistake in deck building ended up costing him. Yo, <laughs> we're, we're, we're back. We're back. Had to uh, take care of something at work. Take so. care of business. <laughs> at the back of the face-to-face games Montreal store. So just to wrap, well, do another, I guess, 10, 20 minutes to, to make it the, the nice one-hour show that people love. So we were talking about... Um, Magic the Gathering. And I think I wanted to mention how in the... When you beat Rob in the top eight, Rob had mentioned that he was being outplayed. Yeah. Right? Um, but it's not like, by the, by the way you shifted your sideboard, but it it's not like he could have necessarily anticipated. Well, he, he saw your whole deck list. He has but, a whole list, and I mean, it's, there's that, but there's also like, there's also some maneuvering things in the games themselves. Like I think in the first game, there were a few spots where like. He made suboptimal decisions, and I capitalized them. And I also put him into spots where I could kind of trap him. And, you know, like, he didn't always fall into the trap, but sometimes he did. And that, like, I, I pulled out a game that it felt like I really lost and managed to end up winning. Um, okay, so it was more than just the, the shifting of the sideboard. I think so, yeah. I mean, the shifting of the sideboard is, is tricky. There's, there's not too much he can really do about it. Especially, he's like a monocolor deck, and you know he's already playing all his removal spells. Uh, he doesn't have any flyers really to play, and it's just kind of he stumbled a little bit. His draw was a bit slower, and mine was kind of fast flyers and beat beat the crap out of him. <laughs> um, well, one of the highlights of of our interview was the fact that you, you played a certain card that people normally that, that you couldn't naturally play in the deck, and even Sean Dollywall. What private message me like, man? That's insane. Like I, I, like, he's like, I can't believe he did that. You know, that's I don't know how his brain works. So, uh, so yeah, yeah, that let's was go, go over that. That was my second draft deck. When it's playing blue red, like draw two cards is usually the theme of that, and that was kind of the case here. I was playing two mad ratters, the four drop that when you draw two cards in a turn, you make two rats, and I had that combined with my main. I had a bunch of ways to draw cards. Often the red ones where you discard a card and then draw. But also I had two copies of the Sage, the 5-mana, 2-5 Merfolk, that when 
it or another non-human comes into play under your control, you can draw a card and then discard a card. Uh, so I would usually curve the Mad Ratter into the Sage, which would trigger a loot, and then which would create be my second draw for the turn, making two more rats, and the rats would come into play each triggering loots. Um, so this doesn't go infinite, because you, Mad Ratter only triggers one turn, but you still get two more loots, so your hand quality becomes very high. And as you, when you find your second Mad Ratter, uh, or you start playing things like the Instant Speed Tormenting Voice, I forget what it's, it's called, but uh, you play that on your opponent's turn, you get more rats, which then give you more loot, so you get to go through a large quantity of your deck. And you're very good at creating a, a board presence on the ground. Um, you're pretty good at finding removal spells, but the deck is in general kind of slow to get going. And so one thing I put in, I played a Bartered Cow, which is a white card in my blue-red <laughs> deck. And... I was never planning to cast it, though I had a spinning wheel, so I could, in theory, cast it. Uh, but the idea being that I'm, I go to the point where I get to, I have seven ways in my deck to draw and discard a card, or discard and draw a card, and then I also have, you know, the the sages are recurring, so I get to see a lot of my deck, and I discard and draw a lot of cards. So it's kind of a free roll one to discard, and you get a you get a, a food from it which, when you're going in later in the game, can give you the three life that's important. But also I had Animating Fairy, which, uh, you know, the adventure side puts four plus one plus one counters and animates a, a non-creature artifact. So I could make my food into a creature and attack. For example, I could go end of turn, the opponent's turn, I have an empty board, play the Tormenting Voice, discarding the, the cow, making a food, and then next turn, turn three, use Animating Fairy to make the food into a four-four and attack. I also had the Merchant to be able to do that as well, as early as turn one. So that's a card that I don't know if a lot of people would have necessarily played in that deck, you know, but based on what my game plan was, you know, being able to discard that to create a food, and that's, my game plan was always going to involve multiple draws and discard, and I was always going to have one, because I just had so many, that it wasn't really going to be a dead card. Uh, and in fact, it's just going to end up being an extra food, which had a lot of potential synergies with what I was doing. So that was a cool one, you know, the spot where the discard clause on the bartered cow is relevant and limited, not just construct where some people might have expected it. So you have to you have to think outside the box sometimes, KYT. Uh, I mean, <laughs> we we've talked about like thinking outside the box in terms of your um, your plays and and how cards function, like what what your options are for for every card. Now we're talking about sort of Deck building, so, yeah. deck building, and um, and drafting too. You you know, I think if you're drafting that kind of deck, it's a card that you could consider trying to pick up one copy of. It's not a hard card to get because nobody really wants it. Nobody playing white wants it, but it's super super filler in a white deck. But here it's actually pretty good card. It works well with the game plan, and maybe if I had a second one, I would have played it. Certainly, if you have like three of the. Tormenting voice and like two out of meaning fairy, I would I would play like multiple copies. There's there's spots where it could be really really excellent. So, how, how were your drafts? Was is the format something? Like I even I jumped popped into your stream today, but I've been in and out of Semlin's stream, and and he he's starting to get bored. He felt like it, it's pretty solved in his mind on what the good archetypes are. Like where are you at when it when it comes to to throwing? I don't I don't feel that at all. I think. So I think arena drafts are different animals. Okay, yeah, he might be referring to that too. Yeah, too, that's what he's doing, and he's kind yeah. of always forcing the same archetype. 
I think also today there was a, an update to the bots, but the bot, I think when I first was, when I did like my play testing for GP Montreal, which consisted of me doing like one and a half seals, being, meaning like I played one seal deck and I built another seal deck and dismantled and like conceded the, the sealed event because I, after just building it, and I did like, I did like two drafts, uh, and I noticed that the mill deck was like the deck to beat was really good. And, but I figured that that's, that was an arena thing because of the way the cards go, that not everybody was going to be playing Mill at the GP. Is it blue, blue-black? Yeah, blue-black. I mean, blue being the key color. It could be any other color, really. Uh, the key cards being Didn't Say Please, Counterspell that mills them for three. The Merfolk that mill, this is a zero-four and can mill them for four is an adventure. And then you, can, you bounce it with Runaway and stuff. And there's other incidental ways to mill people too, so people milling you out was a pretty common thing that would happen. And I think Semulin, for example, thought that was the best deck in the format solved. But that's not how draft works. Draft is self-correcting. The more people that draft something, the worse it gets. You know, often in format, one color is identified as the worst. But if you're the only person drafting it, you get a huge advantage. And that's like, for instance, Absent Restored, when I won the PT, one of my strategies was drafting black in the draft format where everybody else thought it was unplayable and it was horrible. And basically, I was pretty much the only black drafter in at least one of my drafts, maybe only one of two in the next one. And both my decks were really, really strong as a result. I think like this format, white is probably the weakest color, which has been the, the trend for a while, but it's far from unplayable. You just have to figure out what you're doing. I think this that the draft format's really interesting because it does a good job of balancing wanting to be multiple colors because of, you get access to more cards, but also being wanting to be monocolor because certain cards give you a big payoff if you're monocolor and your mana is much more consistent because the mana in this format is pretty bad. You really do want to have multiples of all your cards. For example, even in my deck in the in the top eight, I had. Um, the Forbidding uh, Feast or Forbidding Fruit or whatever, which is, you know, you want to play Adamant for that th triple black to draw two, lose two, and make a, f a food. But I also had Feasting Troll King, which is quadruple green. Yeah, it's so, so, like, so good, though. So, like, how do, you, how do I balance that? Well, I had two, I had three creatures that could, uh, the Goose and two uh, of the three drop that could produce any color. So that would smooth out my draws. Uh, and, and also, you know, you the drawing two, lose two, you don't have to play Adamant for. And uh, so I had more green sources, but still my mana base was not particularly great, and there were spots where I was missing my fourth green to be able to play my, my troll for for a couple turns, and I had to scry an extra land on top, even though I had about, like eight lands in play, I only had three forests and five swamps. And normally you don't want to do that, but that's where I was because I wanted to cast my bomb. Um, so I don't like, for instance, Pascal Baynard swears by monocolor. He thinks that that's the way to go, that he wants to force monocolor every time. Other people disagree. I mean, one of the decks I drafted had drafted before and that I finished up with on my stream today was a four-color deck. You know, really, it was basically mono blue with a bit of green and then just one black card, one red card, which, again, you can enable with the green three drops, but also with golden egg. You can enable those splashes. And the fact that the game just goes so long that having access to some of these cards is hugely powerful. For example, the black card I was splashing was Forever Young. 
the purpose of that card is to, when the game goes to the point where I'm naturally decking out, to not die to decking. That was why I was playing that card. So the fact that I only had one swamp in my deck to cast it, that doesn't matter because the point when I'm casting it is when my whole deck is gone. So I've drawn every card in my deck already. I had a couple extra sources from, you know, incidental sources, but the idea being that's why the card was in my deck because that was a danger of with that deck. I was playing to play long games that went to the point that I would draw my whole deck. Mm. Um, so I think there's a lot of creative things. I, from what I've seen, basically almost every archetype seems viable in this format, which includes all the color pairs and all the monocolors. And then there's a couple multicolor decks, but I think splashing in general is worse than normal because the mana is already kind of bad in a two-color deck. You really want to be one color with a splash of a second color. You know, you want to you want to have basically you want to imagine that you have one of these lands that requires three of another type of land to come in untapped to give you a benefit. And even if you don't actually have that, you just want to imagine that you do, and build your mana base in that way and build your deck in that way. For example, like my you know my first draft deck wasn't really like that, and I had a bunch of mana problems with it. My black red deck, the power level is really strong, but you know even that deck which had low mana requirements. I still would often, you know, not have double red or double black in a turn where I'd want a double spell, and I couldn't do it. And I, you know, basically every game I would lose would be to color problems with that deck. Uh, the second deck was mono red, really, with a blue splash. I was, it was basically mono red, and I was splashing the, the five drop sages and a couple other blue cards. And that deck worked out much better. I also had a fabled passage, your, your preview card, in fact, in that two color deck to enable that splash. And, uh, you know, being able to have triple red on turn three, I still didn't always have it, but I would have it on turn four, like, all the time, because I would never really find more than one island. Um, and I think, I think that's the big thing to be... The, my biggest takeaway, I guess, from this format is really... It's really important to pay attention to what lands you have in your deck, because often in draft formats, you just throw 9-8 or 10-7 is, like, the decision, and you make it at the end when you're just looking at your deck. But here you want to be drafting with that in mind. You want to know, you want to be a 10-7 or even ideally like 11-6 or 12-5 mana base. And, you know, even if you can be 17-0, that's great. But I think usually a small splash gives you a lot of power. So even like a 14-3 mana base is maybe maybe somewhere to look at, you know. But I think 9-8 is, is generally something I would try to avoid despite the fact that that was where I ended up, but that I didn't. That was not where I wanted to end up. My draft went a little bit off the rails, and I just kind of righted it as much as I could. Okay, that's, that's. I think that's a lot of useful info for people that are going to. I mean, R Richmond is going to be this format, right? A mix, Richmond or? has yeah, it's a mix of this format and uh, standard. Right now, this coming weekend, there's uh, GP in Bangkok and Utrecht, and those are both uh, both this limited format, I believe. And it's also just a really great limited format. I mean, you know, I know the Lords of Limited, they, I listen to their podcast, and they think that it might be the best draft format of all time. They both think that. You know, of course, early to call, but I often, I, I'm always skeptical when people claim this thing, especially I haven't drafted every format. But this is up there. This is, it, so far, it's in my top five. It's really interesting, and the games are, are quite quite fun and long and, and challenging, some people are going to hate it 
because right, right. if you're a fan of really short, quick, you know, one person runs over the other person, this is not usually like that. There are some games like that, but a lot of the games are long grind fests where figuring out your game plan and your win condition is really important. Understanding how you're going to win, how your opponent can stop you from winning, and how they can win, and and thinking of your deck and your your match on a strategic level rather than just a tactical level. Thinking about, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to win by naturally decking my opponent out. <laughs> is a large percentage of games would end that way. You know, you answer every threat that they have, and they've drawn two more cards than you, and they die. I think, what well, like, even even Ben Stark made a recent tweet about like I don't know, a lot of people think this format is too long, and I think someone replied like, well, they should learn to to concede earlier or whatever. But, um, yeah, I. I I mentioned how I really enjoyed watching, I because I, I couldn't really approach your table for when you were playing Raw because you were at the far end. But to be up close to the finals, um, and and how tense it was and how close it was made for very and because it was an elimination match, I didn't really care how long it was. Yeah, but I mean the GP went pretty long. We were done yeah. at like ten thirty after starting at nine yeah. a.m. And you know the judges were like, "Oh, is, is this this format's long? Is this the same format?" This is, yeah, it is. Oh, you know, and I can understand that. Like, especially the sealed format, I, I think there are a lot of draws. Um, it's pretty slow. Food is generally a mechanic that prolongs games because, you know, even though you're winning by a certain amount, you're attacking them a lot. They can sack their food and not die, and because of that, that allows people to get back into games because they can top deck the other person and flood out. Yeah, I've seen you come back in that finals alone, just like having to sack two foods and making a food every turn where the guy's clocking you for four or five, but, you know, that's instead of four or five, a huge chunk of your life, it's just like one or two. That's yeah. that's a huge difference. And Yeah, I mean, the Gilded Goose does real work there, but in general, I think this format has has had a lot more comeback games where games I thought I could never possibly win but ended up winning than any other format in recent memory for me. Uh, and it's... You know, often it's like uh, you're the, there's an aggro deck and you're the control deck and you stabilize and then you're a low life. It's not like that. It feels like we're both kind of mid-rangey decks, but they have an advantage. And then you know, I just I managed to figure out how to survive through what they have and figure out a route to win. So what, man? So I, I do wonder how how what would be the ideal format. I wonder if you can't have this awesome rewarding format without it being so long. That's my my question at least. Maybe not. I mean, you know, again there's mad being a skill intensive or interesting format for me involves there being a lot of tough decisions to make. And usually it's easier for there to be a lot of tough decisions to make if the game's longer. Right. You know, it, you can have a lot of tough decisions in a short game. What happens for short skill intensive games are that the decisions, there's not, usually not that many of them, but they're very important and very difficult. In a long game, though, you just, by the fact that the game goes so much longer, there's usually are more decisions. And even if each decision itself isn't as hard, there's more opportunity to screw them up. And so, more advantage for you if you're making them all correctly compared to your opponent. And that's what maybe makes this format feel more skill intensive. Uh, again, I'm really biased. I just want a Grand Prix. I mean, but. <laughs> It's, it's, it's also like not the format for everybody. Everybody likes different things. And I think that's one of the great things of Magic, that there's new sets coming out and every format kind of different. For every like Zendikar, which was known as blisteringly fast, you could never block. And it was just all tempo. To this, 
format, which is like super, super long, grindy. People have things to do all the time from adventure, uh, you know. It's just like at the finals where you and your opponent had three, two or three creatures each, and uh, both of you could have either instant spells or him. Uh, more notably, like like pump spells and. Um, that specific situation was was that situation for multiple turns and at each point it's like how many creatures are you each attacking with and and it was like one little slip if he doesn't attack with one one more than he should that that could have swung the balance yeah exactly yeah you, you if you attack with one too many creatures and then they have a removal spell or a way to tap your things or a pump spell and they can just kill you you have to figure that out on every turn all the combat math how much can you attack with because you know often you, it's clear you attack with all your creatures they block and they take lethal damage but now they have these two food tokens that they could just sacrifice and stay alive with and they don't necessarily have to block quite as much and then they can attack you back and kill you maybe you know because you attacked with too many things you know and they can their big creatures kill your small ones and it's, it just becomes a lot more complicated and I know some people really hate that they hate these clogged up boards where things are complicated they can't figure out the math right away but I think you know it's a really good learning opportunity to be able to do the, all this math in your head and figure out optimal attacks optimal blocks and how are you going to ultimately win the game okay I'll, I'll, uh, no, a listener walked up to us and said they, they love TF2 <laughs> or TFT can be TFT team fight tactics I have to, I have to bring this game uh, into the topic because it's it's still like draft and there's one thing I wanted I was curious about uh, to ask you that that relates to this game and possibly both is that it, it we talked about how you have to stay I guess open to to the archetype that, that I guess usually you, you just want to play the one that's open not to what other people are playing likewise in team fight tactics if you're you're stuck to this team composition like I have been crushing it. I've been winning everything when I'm usually the only brawlers team but when there's a game when there's other brawler teams i suffer and but i do wonder here's why I'm, I'm curious right now as i sit here i think about i think it's called the the prisoner's dilemma where right. like where i feel like i have to switch because like we're all gonna suck if i stick but if like they switch off and i stick with the brawlers i'm probably gonna win so it's like a weird yeah well it's it's not exactly prisoner dilemma it's much more arms race in some ways okay. that like you know it'd be you you're like both trying to compete in the same thing it'd be better if like you, know, you didn't but on the other hand like if you know it, it is somewhat prisoner's dilemma in that like for you def if you defect and you, you like you move off of the the best comp they end up winning because they have the best comp and if they don't and, and if they if they don't move off if you if you both move off it's better for both of you as well but if it's better if they're moving off for you to stay on it because then you'll have the best comp that's prisoner's dilemma basically. right so i wonder if if that ever happens in draft is my question, I guess. <laughs> Somewhat. It's hard to know because yeah. TFT is much more fluid and changing all the time, whereas Magic, there's a clear end point, right? It's like you draft three packs and then it's over. So at what point do you figure out that somebody else is doing something? Like, you know, and yeah, sometimes it is worth it to move off and sometimes it's not. And in TFT also, you're all drafting individually, whereas in, dra in a Magic draft, somebody's passing to you and you're passing to someone so if the person's passing to you is the person who's fighting you well they have priority they get the best stuff first right 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 whereas if it's the other way around you get the best stuff first screw them you're taking those good cards you know <laughs> and there's a little bit of balance of like figuring out how much what are you giving up to switch 
know, is it is it worth it? Like, uh, are are the cards you have more powerful than what you would would gain elsewhere reasonably in the amount of picks that are left? You know, if you're going to get a couple filler cards, you know, to finish out your deck with what you have, it might be worth the stay. There's also certain formats where just like the bombs, the most powerful cards you have are all that matters. And so if you have you open one of those, sometimes you just want to force it, like. Uh, Fate Reforge being one I can remember where the, the rare level was just so strong, they just wanted to take your rare basically and just stick with it because anything else you would get would not be on the same power level and the medium cards and the bad cards weren't that different compared to the top cards when, you, when, it's, when you're really rewarded for switching colors to, to the open lane is when the commons and, and I guess to a lesser extent the uncommons are really powerful because then you can get paid off for those things especially multicolored uncommons that are not useful in other decks. Something like Drown in the Lock is a card you can splash in most decks, right? Right. So if you end up finding blue-black mills open, you're still not going to necessarily get that many of those because some people are going to pick them to splash them. But if it's a card that literally nobody else could use except for your archetype, like let's say like... Wandermare, I guess, is a bit closer, where it's like green-white adventures, that card is busted, but you don't really want to splash a 3-3 even if it gets a couple counters in your other deck. So, if you get that, that's a really powerful payoff. And those are kind of the real payoffs you get for switching into these archetypes that are open, but it's important that the, that the commons are strong and deep as well, too, because usually you're not going to get powerful rares. A lot of people think that they get rewarded when they get second or third pick rare, but that is a small reward, but usually the real reward is when, like, you get seventh pick something awesome for your deck. Right. You know, like, a baked into a pie, for example, if, if black is somehow open, you get seventh pick baked into a pie, that's great, you know? And that's because a com it's a common card that is going to come to you, and it's not splashable. A card like Fireball, someone's going to take and splash, so it's not really as much of a payoff for being red. I guess you're right. It is different from from teamfight tactics. I just I'm just laughing right now, just thinking about all the times, all the casuals drafts that I've done at FNM, and since, uh, I mean, I, I can I can swear on the show, but like a lot of times <laughs> when you finish a draft, in the casual draft, I'm sure it's happened to you when you're, you're drafting with friends and you show the colors you're drafting or the archetype, and you see like some other guy do it, and you're like, what the fuck, dude? Right? Like. <laughs> Yeah, or you're like, fuck you, man. Why were you? Why are you in my car? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that I passed happens. you so much good shit. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's always what happens. Always like, oh, I passed you so much green. How are you in blue black? Yeah, yeah. How are you ever blue black? I never passed you anything there. Yeah. I just passed you this green. I'm wicked, wicked wolf and this. It's like, well, I opened this, and then there's a lot of blue and black flowing in this other pack. It's like, man, I could have been in my deck. You know, right. like, it's like, like, what is going on? And it's like, well, you got second pick. This. It's like, ah. Oh. But yeah, I mean, you have to learn to read those signals, and then, you know, draft is a cooperative thing, even though you're going to end up battling other people in your pod for supremacy of it, right? You still want to cooperate with your neighbors. You want everybody else to not cooperate, and you want to cooperate so that you and the people next to you have good decks, and the other side of the table has horrible decks because they're all in the same colors. But you want... But, but for... But, like, because you're drafting an order... It's more like if you're if you're the one passing and and you feel like the guy to your left is or somehow you know that the guy to the left it doesn't matter like you know that they're drafting the same thing it should be probably more on them to switch I guess yeah like like 
I think people really overrate the signals that they send downriver right, right. versus the signals they receive. What you receive is way more important. You you care about what that the person who's passing to you for two of the three packs is getting. The other person you can afford to fight them if you have to. And so many times I see people like take the third best card in a pack because the best two cards are in the same color, and you're, they just end up with the worst card. Sometimes they end up being past cards of the first the color that they just didn't take and they're like oh I'm, well I didn't take that so I can't take that anymore pass it along like uh, you know I, I for instance one of my drafts I passed a worthy knight or whatever the, the two drop that when you cast knight spells you make a 1-1 one, one. and I could have been like oh I'm not going to take knights anymore but I, I got past a bunch of good knight cards so I started taking them and sure maybe I had some overlap with my the next person but it's their job to switch off of what I'm doing <laughs> it's not my job oh so and, what's your, and, and they did they switched off they switched into green white and I was black red knights and and I ended up passing them some good green cards and they ended up having a good deck but you know even in the in the, the draft before top eight I was passing to Rob Anderson and you know I passed him some blue cards to start with but then like I was starting to get some blue cards, you know, to splash in my red deck, like the, the two Merfolk two fives, and I was taking those and some other blue cards, and so he was getting a bit cut off there, and he switched. He wasn't blue anymore, you know? And again, that's, that's his job to maneuver that. It's not my job to worry about. <laughs> I expected he... him to be like, what the hell, dude? <laughs> you, you fed me well, blue. He, he did say, he's yeah. like, you hooked me, man, you hooked me. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> I guess, yeah, I love it. I love it now that... For, for anybody drafting, we have this rule. If you flip over the decks and you see someone drafting the same thing, it's if he's he's directly to your he or she is directly to your left or close to your left, then it's their fault. Yeah, it's we, like we, you didn't tie. You, you didn't you had one job. <laughs> well, we you had one job. Tie. We'll Just <laughs> get out of my colors. What are you doing in my colors? What's weird though is that sometimes people are right next to each other in the same colors and they both have fantastic decks. Have you seen so, it? I'm sure I've, you've had, yeah, right? yeah. What hap- that usually happens when nobody else on the table is in their oh, colors. Oh, right, right, yeah. And That's an interesting that, phenomenon. That happens often because of the double cut factor that the people on either side, like let's say the two people next to each other are taking blue. And right. on either side, nobody people are going to really not see much blue because it's being t- the best card and the second best card are being taken. So there's going to be a lot, large high concentration of, of blue there, as an example. Um, wow, that's interesting. So it is possible... Yeah. What what when it happens the most is in formats I think where there's diff a cert, especially where colors have varied identities. For example, there's like half of the color is very aggressive and half is very controlling. Where blue is like a perfect example where there's like tempo aggro flyers, let's say, and there's card draw removal counter spells, and like one person can have blue black control and the other can have blue white tempo aggro, and the cards they actually want for each other's decks. There's some cards, the super premium cards, they're going to fight for, but a lot of the other cards are don't overlap that much. The blue-black deck really wants every definition it can get its hands on. The blue-green deck or blue-white deck or whatever wants every unsummon. But, you know, cards like the claustrophobias or whatever, both of them want. It's just a, a removal spell that both decks want, but, you know, they're going to fight over that. They're going to fight over, you know, air elementals, right? But in terms of the strategy and it, it, that's just for like a normal corset style format for formats where there's even higher level synergies like in Ravnica where you know Golgari and Demir let's say both have black but they have you know blue black and black green cards and one is you know about creatures and the other one's about spells 
you can you can have people sharing a collar right next to each other and not really have overlap in what they want. I think we, we talked about a lot of fun, funny stuff and, and a lot of good uh, content to, you know, like it, it, it was tough to see the when we first talked about not autopiloting, but I think this one we, it, it shed more light on the concept. I feel I don't know why. Like we we went more deep in into into examples maybe. Yeah, into examples like real examples and even someone like someone of a pro tour champion caliber player like uh, Dave Rude said like he just couldn't see that use of a card in that at that given time yeah. I guess he was impressed by well that's also a thing about him if you, you look at the great players and they're much more honest with both themselves and other people about where they're fallible and where they're not fallible uh, and like I think often a lot of people let their ego get in the way of getting better at magic and they're you know they don't want to admit that they made a mistake or that they couldn't didn't see something or they couldn't do something and because of that they hold themselves back from learning more and being honest with yourself to most importantly to yourself but also to other people enables you to learn more other people are more willing to help you if you're honest about where you're at and you know if you're humble and it's have a, a positive attitude it's just you're better to be around you're more likely to gather people around you who want to help you out so you know, for example, so many people just saying they, they screwed up like Rob. It's just like, yeah, I got outplayed. I, I, I messed up. Sean Dollywall, you know, saying like round nine, the GP, he, he played horribly. He should have won. Dave Rude <laughs> saying, saying things, you know. And like I, I made a mistake in one of my rounds. Like I, I made an error that just like cost me the game. And, uh, you know, we're all, we're all human. We're all fallible. We're all going to make mistakes. So you just realize that you don't have to be perfect. And... You know, once you accept that you're not, you can start improving things. Right. So I think the thing, uh, uh, because we had to, to, to rush to the store, uh, we'll touch again upon the, the focus thing was I wanted to hammer the fact that, like, even you, Alex, like, you've won a pro tour, you've won multiple GPs, but that you also, you know, feel tired at the end of some of these or, or all of them, and, and a player shouldn't feel like they are doing something wrong if they are losing focus or whatever energy at the later stage of the tournament that's just what's going to happen but you know you can experiment with different things or different foods or drinks to yeah. see if if you can i mean i recommend the, the, Car the carlson magnus carlson method and from what i did like carb loading beforehand having gum during you know he, he drinks like chocolate milk I, didn't, I haven't gone that far but maybe next time but also a big thing of being like physically fit is something i think I, that i need to work on that we really haven't hit in magic because it hasn't been big time enough. It hasn't been like worthwhile to necessarily put in that level of effort because the prizes haven't been that high. People just lived their normal lifestyle and had magic as their side thing. And you know, where, whereas you compare it to like chess or other top level esports like League of Legends, where you look at the people, they have nutritionists and and like you know, physiotherapists and and personal trainers and stuff, and they keep themselves in shape. Like you know, Magnus Carlsen looks like a he could be a soccer player or a tennis player or something, right? And he's, but he's a chess player, and when you have your physical bodies in better shape, your your endurance is gonna gonna be better. I know I know that I've had generally a lot more success when I've been like thinner and in better shape in Magic tournaments than when I've been overweight and you get tired faster, you have less energy. And Magic tournaments take a lot of energy. You know the brain the brain takes a lot of power. It's a greedy greedy organ. <laughs> yeah, like we. 
it's like that article said, like you can, they analyze a chess player and he was burning a lot of calories due to the elevated heart rate and, and stress and, and the amount of concentration he had. Like Yeah, half as much as like Roger, Roger Federer would playing an intense match of singles tennis or whatever. <laughs> it's like... It's kind of it's, unbelievable. It's, it's actually unbelievable. Like, just think of how much he's running and sweating, and those guys like, you you're running half as much. This like, as that. Yeah. Just from sitting down playing a high intensity match, you know. But I can understand it too. At the same time, even though it's somewhat unbelievable, and they have you know they have heart rate monitors. Like I have I have this Apple Watch, and it tells me like you know it it told me like I wasn't running or anything. There's some days where I spent like, you know I went to the the, the protest for climate change and I was walking basically for like five hours straight and it tells me how many calories I burn and it's a similar number to like during the, both days of the GP <laughs> it's telling me like that I'm burning like a thousand calories those days from and I'm not walking around very much you know a little bit but it's mostly yeah heart rate and you know burning things while sitting down all right um, so yeah chew, chew gum that's, chew. that's the one thing I can I can recommend is just simple thing Thank keep yourself keep yourself hydrated i mean these are kind of cliches but they sort of work and thanks for listening we'll, we will do you know when whenever especially uh with you know alex will be busy preparing for uh the mythic championship and and also richmond and uh yeah maybe we'll do one uh early next week before i head off to uh, to la but oh man it sucked i i'm upset because i showed on facebook that there's a. Uh, there's a chess open at Long Gate. Yeah. It's like so close. Yeah, and, I was talking uh, with my dad. Maybe we'll go check it out. I, I can't. I'm not gonna play it. It's, it's Canadian Thanksgiving this weekend, actually. Too. Okay. Right. But uh, but maybe one day, like, go in uh, and and see if you're interested. Maybe we'll go I'm... check it out. See the Grandmasters playing. It's been a while since I I played a chess tournament. I mean, I think, and I think there, it's really always been good for me when to, for my Magic game, because it it refocuses me in chess. You cannot autopilot. And you really have to think everything through or you get punished. And you get punished hard. In Magic, when you make mistakes, you sometimes get punished and you sometimes don't. And it's really good for you as to get punished as a, for your personal growth. So every time you make a mistake and get unlucky for it, you know, just think, this is good for my personal growth. Rather than, oh, I can't believe they drew the thing <laughs> or whatever. You know? Everything's just an opportunity for growth. All right, ciao. We're at 2%, so... Parkour! <laughs>